When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Your usual schedule used to be you would kind of record September, release December, and then tour in the spring. Now that we're coming up to the spring, what's in store for you this year that touring isn't going to be back quite yet? Well, I've got, I mean, there's a lot of gigs. There's some which have been announced and there's some which are kind of under wraps at the moment. Everybody's just waiting to see if restrictions can be lifted. I mean, the truth is I actually did quite a lot of gigs last summer. There's that kind of social distance, like six people sat on a pub bench and seated gigs outside. There's not much music that actually works well in that scenario, but what I do kind of does. So I got loads of calls last summer in between the lockdowns and I played in like a sheep farm in Devon, you know, where they mowed circles in the grass and people had to stand within their circles and like a car park in Bristol uh, where people were just sat on pub benches and I got you know for it was only like three weeks but I played a bunch of really interesting sort of seated outside gigs and there's there's certainly more stuff like that in the in the pipeline I think you know promoters are really keen to get going everybody is obviously and I think there's also what everybody's seen certainly on the festival side of things is that people can sell tickets which is part of the art of of, of you know of the whole shebang so if festivals know, if people know that they that people want to go then something will be created to fulfill that that need so you know ever the optimist there's the potential for it to be quite a um a, a kind of seminal summer you know like if restrictions are lifted and every the good promoters of the country have to kind of think outside the box and work with what they are doing. But at the same time, people really want to go out and see gigs and see each other. Then, you know, it could be something really beautiful could, could happen. Obviously something really drastic fucking happen <laughs> as well, but you do, you wonder if there could be something like mass testing. Cause I know they're kind of doing that at comedy shows in America right now where they test everyone before they go into like the arena or whatever. But it, it obviously adds a couple hours mm. on or whatever, but something just to kind of make it a lot more fail-safe. Yeah, I, f- I certainly think that the arts will also be used to kind of like um, convince people to abide by the rules, you know, in want of better words. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but there'll be a lot of that. I mean... I, I think personally, I'll just try and stay out of the, the politics of it all and just be there for the good times, um, basically. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's just a lot of opinions flying around at, at the moment, isn't there? I mean, um, but yeah, I think, you know, gigs will happen this summer. Under, and I was saying that, I mean, I've done, I did a podcast a while back uh, where I talked at length about 
why Glastonbury would go ahead <laughs> and how Glastonbury was going to pave the way for all the other festivals. And by the time the podcast actually aired, Glastonbury had already cancelled. So I, I sort of promised myself I'm not going to make too many future predictions on, uh, on, on things such as this. But, but I stand by it. Gigs will, gigs will happen in, in, you know, in, in some form. You can't, you know, you can't stop the music, man. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying about Glastonbury as well, you could look at it that maybe there is an opportunity there that wasn't quite taken. Like there could, you think there would have been something they could have done, but I guess it's hard to say. If any, My attitude was if anybody can do it, you know, if anybody's got the support of like every band in the world, like the general public, like the greatest production crew of all time. If someone had to, if someone had to rewrite the book of festivals, you know, and how you, how you run a festival, there's no one better to give that a shot than Glasto. And it, you know, it being at the start of the summer, it could have invented a blueprint that everybody then just sort of like lived by or, or at least sort of attempted to, but you know, that, that wasn't, to be i mean they've just announced a live stream haven't they so i saw that actually um, yeah it's weird that we're now gonna have had it's probably gonna be like a year and a half of live streams i thought that, it, that yeah. i feel like that ship had kind of sailed a little bit but maybe not a little bit yeah i mean they've been like they've been really beautiful for me but it's not you know i think i i mean they had their honeymoon period and they fucking you know they saved my ass there's no doubt about it um and and I, th- I think it, ha- it will, it will have created a new, um, a new platform for live music, but it will never replace a gig. It would just, and it, having an, another platform to perform live on is, is a good thing, you know, and I'm sure there is people that, that might even prefer it for whatever of their personal reasons. But I think it's like, you need to see it as, I've never referred to them as gigs. <laughs> you know, I've never said, oh, I've got a gig on Sunday. So it's a live stream, you know, it's something com- completely different that bears some similarities to it. I mean, they'd be good for me for one, because, you know, I've just been sort of pimping out my wares, you know, selling my wares through the internet rather than at the merch desk, you know, and, uh, and, and, but also for otherwise, I, there's no, I'm never really one to like rehearse. So I wouldn't, I play enough gigs to not forget my old songs, you know, I just, constantly playing them and I play what people shout out so I have a general understanding of my back catalogue but I'd never sit at home and play them for no reason I'd always work on new music and uh, and and without the, the sort of like so I'd, I've been live streams I've been writing a set list and relearning my old songs which is completely you know I've never even worked with a set list before but I worked out on live streams you have to because there's no one to bounce off you know to to guide your set so I'd, I'd started writing set lists and then um le- relearning the old song so I'm still pretty up to date with like my back catalogue whereas in a world without live streams i'd be stepping out with a whole load of new songs and people would be shouting out songs from the crowd and i just be like, i wouldn't even know where to start you know so at least i've they've sort of anchored me creatively as well how many songs do you usually have in your caliber like how many could you just play in the moment oh that's a good question i don't really know i mean it it's more like if I was if I was flowing, if it was like for some reason, like sometimes someone will shout out a song and I'll just be like, I know it. And I might not have played it for years, but I'll be able to go back straight in and get it, you know, like a, a really wordy song, start to finish, no questions asked. Other, t- other times... I'll be halfway through a tour singing a song that I know every, that I sing every night. And I'll just be like, fuck, what's the third verse? <laughs> and the minute that I open up the, I don't know the words, then it's like barriers go up and it gets harder and harder to remember. You get like further and further away from the song and you sort of scramble towards it. But if I was, if you caught me like on, on flow, I reckon probably like a hundred tunes. It's quite a lot. Just to be able to play, reckon, you know, yeah. off the cuff. I mean, I'd rather not you actually throw down the gauntlet and challenge me to it. But like, if I was, it, I'd yeah, I'd I'd bet on myself and say around about that. How how is that kind of divided up over your back catalogue? Is like maybe twenty five of them? Would they be off the last two records? Would you be able to play every song off of them? And then maybe it kind of gets less. I'd be able to, the the last yeah. 
the last two records and and the and the next record I'd be able to do you know like without really thinking about because they're still in there and I find that um with past records like as much as I don't really have singles there's each album has generally like two songs which just outlive the rest um and and them songs so and it will be and they were the ones like i think every gig that i play is pretty equal scattering of music from you know like the 13 albums basically and that's generally you know i'm a big fan of playing what people want to hear at gigs you know like and and i know that you know you you can tell the songs that that, that people like the most and so i just just generally keep them in the set so yeah it would be even evenly distributed kind of two tunes off each record i reckon at what point do you identify the songs from a record that are kind of going to live on in the set like you're saying that maybe a couple will stick around forever pretty much some sometimes when you write them sometimes i finish writing it and i'm like you know that's it that's that's the tune of this record and the tune of this year. That will be like and songs when you when you write a song like that, I'll all, almost like I'll I'll have an idea for the video as well while writing it, and it, the the whole kind of life of the song will just be like, oh, the video is going to look like this, it's going to be called this, blah blah blah, and it will just and I'll, you you, you kind of know when you're onto something really good, like certainly within my own repertoire, really good, um, and then others uh, are a real surprise. And uh, some some it becomes clear in the studio when you're recording it in a studio. You sort of think that a song that w- was perhaps more of a sort of album track, sort of not necessarily going to be a live favourite, and it you record it and it, it comes to life. I mean, there's there's the minute you start interacting the song with other people, always breathes new life into it anyway. So um, yeah, that there's an aspect of that and sometimes you know like again throwaway sometimes i think songs are quite throwaway and then you can tell when you play live it just it just connects you know and i'll always be like is there any songs that anybody wants to hear so that's a dead giveaway when people start <laughs> shouting the back at you is it worried then that you haven't had that part of the process yet for the last two records like normally you would have started to get inklings of that yeah. now i imagine Definitely, certainly in the in the writing process, like there's great John Prine interview where he explains that a song isn't really a song until you've played it to someone else, you know, and the minute that you've played a song to someone else, it kind of, it finalises the writing process and it also, for the first time, you view it as it kind of through someone else's eyes like as you can get really lost in the writing of a song and there's no you know just completely self-absorbed in it as you should but the minute then it's like hey man whether it you know i mean i'd say and 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 only be in the nicest way possible my wife doesn't really count for this neither does my three-year-old because they hear all this shit all the time so i'm like hey new song like they get it half half finished but in any other um you know, I'd I'd also normally if I'm working on a song and I've got a gig, I, I'd generally gig a song before it's finished. Like I'll just be like, oh look, I'm halfway through this song. Do you want to hear the first two verses of a new song and and play that and and that can help me get to, get to the end of it. But yeah, it definitely feels like the songs are kind of it, not even necessarily that they would have, have changed, but they feel like. Um, they feel a bit immature, just like like there's something, there's a process that they still haven't gone through at the moment. And uh, and it's weird because I, I think with the, the songs that I wrote about lockdown, they probably won't ever get that. They had that show into the world when, um, when the, the album was released. A lot of them were never played live. And the last thing I want to do when I get back on stage is sing fucking songs about lockdown. And I <laughs> can imagine the last thing anybody wants to hear is songs about lockdown. So that that album is just kind of like locked away, basically, and like them songs never got never got past that immaturity. But the songs I'm working on now, I can't wait just to. I'll have to, you know, not just get on stage and be like, "Hey, I've got loads of new songs." Like, just fire them out. So play the songs that people want as well. But yeah, it's been. It hasn't stopped me from writing, but it's um, it, it it's I've missed having that process. Do you know, I think it's kind of fitting that the lockdown songs won't make it into a live setting. Like they're kind of chained to the environment that they were born from. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the, uh, um, because I, when I was recording them just onto my phone while I, I'd sort of write them and like the strange days, for example, you know, I was 
writing and recording it in between coughing, you know. I still don't know whether we had it, but it felt like it. Like, my daughter and wife were both in bed upstairs with high temperatures, and I was, like, downstairs frantically writing this song and, like, recorded it in the moment. And and a lot of the songs were recorded the night that I wrote them. And, and I guess I thought, as usual, I would go to a studio and then re-record them. And I was just, I listened back, and it's like, I had got just got a new phone, so I was like, fuck it, Recorded, it was incredible for a phone. And it's like, why would I try and recreate the feeling of being locked at home anywhere else? You know, it's not really a feeling I want to recreate, you know, and it's there. So it's like, sod it. I didn't make, I didn't make a point about saying it was recorded on the phone because I didn't want that, it to be about that. I hadn't heard um, that, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone. I just said recorded at home, you know, and I guess everybody presumed that I'd sort of, you know, would own a nice microphone or something but you know it's not I always record of other people and, and it just but yeah it's just, it's just like I kind of it, it, I'm glad that record happened it feels like uh, you know obviously I wish that there was no reason for it but it's it's a strange anomaly in my back catalogue now that's kind of like a sort of bump in the road basically let it let's let it stay there I mean it's interesting because when you put out an album called The Unforeseeable Future and another one called Knee Deep in Nostalgia. The assumption is that one is very much about looking ahead in the future and one is very much about looking back in the past. But The Unforeseeable Future really kind of more feels like a record that's in the present. Yeah, exactly that. As opposed to one that's kind of... That, that, that's, that's what yeah. it is, yeah. And it is, I suppose, almost... Not that I've ever thought about this before, but the album before that, The Inevitable Trainwreck, maybe that was about the future. What about now? <laughs> What's the fucking next record going to be about? Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it was It was definitely a, a, a record about the present and a record about the past. Yeah, 100%. Can you see quite directly how they inform your music in different ways, the present and the past? Yeah, I mean, I've found more and more now that one, one album... I definitely write as kind of as albums now, whereas before an album might have been a collection of songs about loads of different things. My albums definitely have like a sort of an overarching theme. And that started to happen because one album will inspire the next. So I had, after my daughter was born, I, I just, we was in this bubble, this really beautiful bubble of new life. And I, I just wrote loads of songs about becoming a dad and kind of love at home and all this. And after that, it was while Trump was getting elected and all that shit. And I come off the back of that album and was like, I need to, I need to write about the bigger picture, you know, like that album, because I'd been so didn't give a shit about the world, just worried about my family. And I came out of it and was like, I need to write about the wider world. There's so much shit going on. And I wrote The Inevitable Trainwreck. And then off the back of that, I come out of that and I was like, fuck, it was all pretty. As much as it was musically quite happy, lyrically, it was like the rise of AI, you know, climate catastrophe. Like, it was all pretty doomsday stuff. And I, I was like, fuck, I can't write any more songs about the end of the world. I was like, what am I going to write about? So, And that inspired, well, I'll write about my past, you know, and like, and it was going to come out or it did come out on my 40th birthday so it's like well if ever there's a time to look back and take stock and I can sort of whimsically look back and throw up some interesting memories and lessons learned and and that was the plan for that album and then when Corona hit it's like fuck I've got to write another album about the end of the world because it feels like it's ending tomorrow so and and that and and as much as and 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 that both of them albums are now pushing into the song, the album that I'm writing at the moment, which is probably too, a bit too early to uh, to go into too many details about, but I'll check back in with you when it arrives, December, yeah. and we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's interesting to think about. You know, you're saying that you had to write that record about what was going on and what was happening very much in the moment, but by the time it comes out, although it was a record very much written in the present, it's then kind of become a record about the very recent past. And we live in this world now where news is constantly moving and we're constantly getting fed news stories. Does that impact you as a songwriter, the way that the news flow is kind of sped up in such a way? It, I've noticed the speeding up of, of the world so much in songwriting. Like, if you write about um, 
current events, your songs are always going to have a shelf life. Uh, and that's something I've got used to. If you mention, you know, a political leader or an event that's happening. And, it, and it's also that is, I guess, why in turn it worked with me releasing music, you know, an album once a year. Things were still in date. If you was writing a song in June and releasing it in December, you know, generally it would be what you had said in June would still stand true in December. But that really started to change. Like Brexit was the first thing where it was like, if you wrote a song about Brexit and you meant, you know, like you mentioned any of the figures in it or any dates or, you know, as a, unless you got it out quick, like it was going to, like, it was going to be out of date. And people, and, and even I might have changed my fucking mind on things. It was so, like, and, and, and it was like, oh, my word. Like, there was a song called England, I Love You on um, uh, the inevitable train wreck about Brexit. And it was like, it was, yeah, everything about it was like the kind of, the what was fact had turned into, because they'd changed, because they'd moved so much. The goalposts had been moved so much since writing the song that it was just like, God, it just feels really out of date and it's four months old. And then with Corona, even more. That was why when I wrote Strange Days, I've sort of felt this thing in me. I was like, make a video for it tomorrow and release it the next day. Like, because, and it was true because the song was about, you know, toilet roll shortages which was massive for a for a minute you know and then it was like everybody realized that the supermarkets are still fucking fully stocked there's other things to worry about you know and it's like it's really felt that uh, you know yeah the world is 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 speeding up is the simplest way to put it you know like and you know you gotta worry about how people can fucking how much shit people can take Basically, you know, because it's never, it's not speeding up in a kind of like, in a good way, is it? You know, it's just like, it's, I think it's fucking with people's heads, to be honest. Yeah, you can't keep up. And it's probably not, you know, we're probably not built for that much worry or tragedy or even, you know, like, I don't know, it's just hard for everybody to take it on. You can see why, and you can see that, you know, why the system is kind of like, falling apart at the edges, you know, and why people have, you know, more and more people feel kind of like frail of mind and stuff like that, don't they? Yeah. I think it's as well, it's like Yuval Noah Harari speaks about in one of his books that the human brain is only supposed to see 150 like unique faces within its lifetime. Because that's like what the size of like what tribes were at that point when we first started evolving. Right. Yeah, and sure. No, you probably see that in a day. And, and and everyone's got an opinion about something else that's sort of like flooding, <laughs> dropping down as well. It's, uh, I mean, but there's it, there's no clear there's no clear answer to it because it's not you know like we can't move backwards. You've got to keep pushing forwards. I think you know, yeah. I mean, we've got to move forwards, but you know, like yeah. I mean, I love you, Vel Nahara, and Adam Curtis as well, who's been like you know. And as the thing is, there isn't any new ideas on the horizon. You know, <laughs> there's no like, uh, there's not a lot to believe in, which is you know, which doesn't help either. But but I, you know, at the same time, I, you know, I believe in humanity. We'll find a way. Yeah, there's always way. even if these records are kind of looking at some tricky issues there's always a sense of optimism about your music yeah i mean i and the worst thing you want to do is be like hey i'm okay so fuck everybody else but you know the, uh, my year it, throughout the pandemic you know has i've you know I, i'm still happy i don't know you know like my family's you know safe and warm and healthy and we've just kind of got on with it and uh and it, i suppose if there's any you know like Certainly for this, I keep stopping myself because I'm talking, I'm trying to talk about the new songs that I'm writing. <laughs> but uh, I mean, like, I, I've sort of found that, you know, certainly the next album is going to be uh, a particularly positive album uh, because, you know, if there is anything to that I can do, you know, it feels like every kind of political wagon that I've hitched myself along to has kind of failed, basically. And, uh, you know, and, and it, you know, what, what, can you do apart from try and put a little bit of good out into the world basically so i've almost kind of not not necessarily personally but certainly creatively maybe i'm going to sort of step away from the kind of modern day politics and talk more about a sort of um 
humanity, you know, and uh, and just try and... I, I believe that we're fundamentally good and I'd like to be able to get that across, basically. You're saying you want to step away from kind of talking about modern politics in quite a right way. At the same time, I do think my favourite line on the last two records is he owes the NHS his life, his tongue-in-cheek. He also owes them 353 million quid a week. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking right, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's um, it's strange because as much as, like, you know, I say these things and then there's certain certain subjects where the songs just write themselves, you know, so... Um, I'm sure that I think if I do do you know if I do a record that has that that isn't touching on the modern day, there'll still be some other songs that perhaps come along at the same time that have more of a kind of like. But I think yeah, I guess maybe that's going to it's speeding up. You know, if it's like if the album I'm going to play on an album, then that needs to be about a more sort of like wide ranging theme. And then, but if I'm going to write a song about current the current situation, then you're probably going to get to it's going to be released in the same week that it's written. You know, just so that it holds relevance. Is it? It's in, like looking back at that line as well. Is it easier to find humour like in the very kind of present current day? Like, would it be harder to find humour if you're kind yeah, of looking it's at those hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like it's it's like you've got to laugh or you're going to cry sort of yeah. scenario isn't it you know and 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 i've never been one to kind of curl up in a ball and hope for things to go away and and uh, you know and if you do if you manage to kind of uh, take your, your 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 sort of self out of it if you manage to look at it without that oh, sounds bad but without not without the sort of pain and suffering that it's causing they're just the kind of idiocy of it all it's fucking you know how we got here is kind of hilarious, you know, like, and the, the shit that we're doing to ourselves and to each other, it's like, it, it, at times there's just, it's, it's, you got to laugh, yeah. I mean, do you ever think about how this is kind of going to be looked back upon in the future? Like, because, I mean, the, I guess you've actually, you've got a lyric in one of your songs that I really like, the person with the pen always has an agenda in terms of the person who writes history. Sure, yeah. Do you kind of, do you wonder how we're kind of going to look back on this time? And how it's going to be written into history? Well, I mean, it's so heavily documented. I mean, I don't know who the quote's from, but it's like, never has a generation documented itself doing so little. <laughs> um, where it's like, you know, it's easy to think that people, you know, like kids, almost like the next generation will be like, won't want tattoos, you know, and will just hate fucking social media like surely they've got a it just feels like we you know i don't know what it'd be like getting raised with someone taking your photo every two minutes but it doesn't stop me taking i loved you it. Know, <laughs> a bunch of photos with my kid <laughs> and what well, and, and now do you take do you feel the need to take photos of things or no but i feel like i'm also kind of an outlier right okay i think it's... i've gone the other way though now i'm now at the point where i don't want photos ever taken of me i can't remember the last time i had a photo taken of me Right. I, and well, that's, that's how I would, you know, if I was to imagine it, you know, like that everybody would be like, it kind of, I don't know, it was my generation when it was like everything sort of appeared and it was like, oh, wow, you could do this now. Oh, wow, you could do this. Oh, wow. Like, and it's like document social media. Yeah. And it was all kind of, it had the honeymoon period. And if you're arriving after the honeymoon period and it's like, you know, it, when it's just something that the old folks use then but i don't know mate it's obviously inbuilt isn't it you know obviously social media is moving with the times and when you go out you just see people documenting themselves and you know and the sunset that more than you see them looking at the sunset i guess i would have liked to have think that the next generation come along and just be like just fucking you know put your phones down you know and step step away step away from the machine but who knows? I mean, predicting the future as much as I, I guess as kind of the sort of the, the job of the songwriter, but it's certainly nothing I've ever been any good at. <laughs> you wonder if we're maybe just like in an awkward transition period with it. Like actually having to kind of interact with a physical thing. I wonder if we'll look back in like 50 years and that's such a clunky way of doing it when we've all got a chip in our head or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the, uh, my favourite interpretation of computers of the future is definitely interstellar. Um, where they've got the robots on the on the ship that are like really funny, just like 
absolute brilliant comedians. That's you can turn that humour up, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's got, what's your humour setting up? But it's like, you know, funnier than any of your mates. And you've got like, and the idea of sort of having this, this sort of, yeah, a sort of robot that is completely practical can do all this shit for you, but is also like really hilarious. So maybe there's something like that. A funny, a fun, maybe it's time the computer's got funny. <laughs> I feel like they'll be a little terrifying as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard not to get all black mirror about it, basically, isn't it? It's like whenever you, if you look at something and try and predict how the future, how it's going to impact on the future, it's hard to imagine that, you know, it's hard to imagine drones delivering food, but hard, but easy to imagine drones fucking bombing the shit out of everybody you know which which is a shame yeah it's maybe a reflection of the time we live in as well though because we live in such a weird period and we're so confused as to how we got to such a dark place we kind of look ahead in a very grim way and we don't seem to ever accept that at some point it's probably going to get all right again like it ebbs and flows yeah fucking mate i'll drink to that yeah that's (laughs) um you know i i hope so and it, it, it might yeah it might just be that maybe it is you know like I said, just because we're taking on too much more information that we can handle and worrying about things that are out of, you know, are out of sync. I mean, there and there is, you know, one of the new songs I've got is called Not Everybody Thinks We're Doomed. And uh, and that is, I've been reading like Rutger Bergman as well. And he's like, you know, humans, you know, like we've almost tricked ourselves into thinking that humans are horrible, you know, when actually, you know, they're, you know, they're nice. Some people have had a tough break and, you know, like, but fundamentally, you know, history will tell you that if humans have a nice environment, they will thrive and get on with each other. And collaboration is why we're here, not, you know, not the wars. Yeah, I mean, that's why we've kind of excelled past all the other animals is because we're at a point where we're able to interact with each other in kind of a compassionate way. There's no other species that can do that on the planet. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would probably take it'd probably take an event to uh, you know to do it. And it was you know it'd be lovely if people came out of the you know the pandemic and realised that the problems that the world faces are global issues and that we need kind of to work together as the world and that you know realised our importance of our connection with nature for our mental well-being and you know general health overall and you know and how important science is and stuff like that and we come out of the pandemic as a kind of a a braver and more compassionate species you know that would be lovely but that's what I want to happen but whether that will happen doesn't might just be vaccine wars (laughs) Did you ever think that at the start, you know, when it all kicked off, did you feel like this could be the thing to kind of bring us together? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is, you know, you know, the world is always, everybody knew that, that, that changes need to ha- needed to happen, you know, in order to stop, you know, to stop climate catastrophe, basically. And it was like, and I think it, a lot of things on it, when it was like, if you tell people you can't fly to Australia because it's going to kill the world, in 50 years time everyone's like oh yeah but the plane's going anyway I, I might as well just get on it and then if it's like you can't go to australia because you'll die and everyone goes oh I don't need to go to australia no problem <laughs> i'll just wait here we'll work it out you know and and once people get that mirror shown to themselves a little bit it's like you didn't you, you know you didn't need to go you just fucking wanted to and that's and that's different and i think there's a lot of um it exposed you know the pandemic definitely exposed strengths and weaknesses on, on, on equal measure. And we've got, to, we've got to learn from it. It's just, you know, it just feels like the leadership in charge and not, I'm not just talking about the Tory government, you know, like the world over feels to be perhaps the wrong people behind us, you know, behind the wheel. I guess it's because it all feels kind of very much the same. Like even if you look at America now where you've got someone like Biden elected, it doesn't feel like a radical kind of change. It feels like we're just stuck in the cycle all the time. Oh, it's the same no. thing <laughs> over and over again. Exactly that. And that just like, just dampens, just slowly dampens everything, doesn't it? But something will happen. Yeah, I mean, I like I like your optimism. I really do. Um, 
maybe Bill and Ted, they were good, weren't they? What did they travel? They traveled back in time, didn't they? And so, God gave rock and roll to you. They solved, solved the world like that. Maybe we'll get time travelers from the future to tell us about our errors and how we can sort it out just by through love, man. <laughs> That's what Bill and Ted do. Be excellent. There was another other. one of them came out last year, wasn't there? Oh, God, was there? Yeah, like there was a third one like 25 years on, which I think was supposed to be pretty shite. <laughs> I can imagine it was, yeah. Although I bet the guy that's, whichever the one that's not Keanu Reeves Alex must have been happy. Yeah. It's probably the it's probably the first film he's done since Bill and Ted, isn't it? Where Keanu went off to have a... <laughs> well, to be Keanu Reeves. Uh, but yeah, maybe they'll, maybe they'll come back, not in a kind of uh, rehash movie, but in an actual... Because it also had George Carlin in it, didn't it? Yeah. It also had George Carlin in uh, um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which at the time I didn't know who he was. And now it's like, I think when I first started, you know, watching his stuff, I was like, hang on, the guy from Bill and Ted. <laughs> and you find out that he's, you know, the genius that he is. <laughs> that, uh, what we were speaking about a few moments ago, where at the start you kind of felt like this could be the thing to bring us all together. Is that where the optimism in the kind of first few songs in the album comes from? And the songs that you were kind of dropping at the start of lockdown and stuff? Yeah, and because I think when I'm writing a song, I'm, you know, I can't see the point of putting out a song without optimism in it. You know, I think when I'm writing a song, I'm searching for optimism within myself. And, you know, optimism and hope, I guess. Um, and, I, you know, I've written, I've certainly got some songs in the past that don't have that sense of hope or, or, you know, a kind of a nice, a, a sort of happy ending as such. And they're pretty brutal songs, you know, they're brutal to write and then record and they're brutal to, if you finish a song and it's like, and then everybody dies, it's like, <laughs> whoa, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not helping basically. It's not doing any good. So I learned quite early on that it needs to, you know, same reason that all movies have a happy ending, I guess. You know, it's, um, if I, you know, if I do question what I do, it's about putting good into the world. So yeah, there was that optimism. Again, I was listening to a lot of, um, Yuval Noah Harari, like podcasts and stuff. He was a great kind of, uh, uh, sort of thinker for the early, early pandemic I found. And he was like, a lot of the stuff was really optimistic where he was like, you know, like if you'd level it up against all past pandemics, like we're doing, amazingly you know these have happened loads of times before but we've never found out what it was in so so quickly and i think what he said about religions was fascinating where it was the first time ever in human history that the the, the church is basically that religion listened to science like in the past if the if the doctor said don't congregate in a church the priest would have said what are you talking about come everybody come you know but all of the all religious institutions the world over closed because basically because the doctors and science said so and that's never happened before and that's a massive victory for science basically it's a kind of biblical thing like when you think about it the idea of a plague gonna sweep in the land yeah and it's also weird because it's sort of like um there's it's kind of nothing to do you know like you sort of picture you know a, a biblical plague sweeping the land and you know like and the majority and i know that people are obviously working in hospitals and you know and running goods around and whatnot but also a lot of people i, I literally sat at home and and that was i think that the my worry, my initial worry, I had optimism for, the, for you know, humanity. My initial worry was like, I think a lot of the problems in the world before the pandemic were people spending too much time on the internet, you know, and be that uh, sort of polarisation of people or mental health issues and all, all that stuff is basically just too much time online. And I was like, imagine the whole world now is going to go on, you know, and just sit online day after day without having, you know, interaction with other people. And it started off, it was really like... Um, the internet became really nice for a while, didn't it? And it was like, you know, three weeks. people making cakes and there was a sort of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got three weeks of niceness and, uh, and then it... Yeah, <laughs> and then it and then it's and I think now we are start, starting to see that um, you know the polarization and the sort of hyper opinions and people sort of it feels like it makes you just less and less inclined to listen to people who don't agree with everything you say, uh, which is probably a bad thing. But we're talking about good things, aren't we? <laughs> but yeah, I think you know going back to that maybe that's why you know the role of kind of 
gigs and festivals will be very important this summer because if people can come out and see each other and, uh, you know, reinstate their faith in humanity, basically, um, and, and maybe that will, you know, Bill and Ted will come on stage and people will just get snap, snap out of it <laughs> and I'll be able to hug again and then it'll be like the summer of love all over again, <laughs> revolution. What happens if they don't come back, though? Where are we then? Uh, what, if they don't come back to the gigs or if they don't come oh, no, back I mean, if the to, gigs don't come don't back. Don't snap out of the polarisation. Oh, that's another good question, oh, if actually. If the gigs don't come back. Latter one. What happens if they don't snap out of the polarisation? Um, it's also an I, interesting idea. What if... It, I'll do the gigs first. <laughs> what happens if the gigs don't come back? <laughs> well, we just have to keep on waiting, I guess, and, uh, and 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 presuming that when they do come back, they will be, you know, the longer you wait, the better it it will be, almost. Um, I, I've been trying, I've been trying to sort of trying to picture myself as a kind of I've, I've got some caterpillars basically and I was sort of like this we're going into we're in, in our cocoon at the moment and we're going to be emerging as as beautiful butterflies and uh, maybe that's what the world has been doing you know we're ready we're ready to not be caterpillars anymore and we will be launching ourselves this summer as beautifully coloured flying butterflies and what if people don't snap out of it well you know do you think it's a minority, though? Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think that many people are... I think the problem with things like this is when people fundamentally believe in stuff, don't they? And I think it's... Um, it's probably like, you know, it's it's a few wankers, probably, <laughs> that are leading the way and making it look like... Making it look like a lot of people are either mean or angry or disagreeable and... And it's a case of like, yeah, getting, like you said, teething problems for this, what is effectively kind of, you know, new technology might just level, level out a little bit. And people will just like, I think people also need to not take it so seriously might be one of the kind of, you know, uh, 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 some help here. Or themselves so seriously. Didn't we start off by saying we wasn't going to talk about coronavirus? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to turn. It's been stuck on it. We did a good um, job. <laughs> it's interesting. I heard someone actually, what we're saying there about it being a minority, There was so, I was speaking to someone the other day and they had this really good kind of positive message where if you ever feel like everything's getting too much, just go outside and the sky's still there, the trees are still there, everything's kind of still in the same place. It's not actually falling apart. Of course, yeah, yeah. Every day you survive, you get a free sunset. You know, it's like, the, I think the connection to nature is one thing that has become, I think, one, a thing that we took for granted, but has become abundantly kind of clear during during lockdown is just how how important that is. And hopefully when we come out of it, we, you know, we could be hugging trees. That's what we should be doing. <laughs> Do you find that living by the sea? Is this the first time you've kind of lived by the sea? Yeah, yeah, it's where my wife's from. And, uh, and I, I feel like, Yes, yeah, so just so lucky, you know, and and having that on a daily basis, that kind of the body of water. I feel more kind of like um, I've always been kind of into trees, and like I've always spent as much time outside as I can. But for the first time, I feel like I know where the moon comes up from, you know, and and stuff like that. I feel way more, and that has lent to you know, and that has helped with with my inner peace. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. You know, for some reason, standing by yourself next to a body of water, it just feels comfortable. And I think there's also, I've been reading Nick Hayes, The Book of Trespass, which is about um, property law. And he goes into a lot about the importance of nature and how we've we've been, in England, not in Scotland, actually, but how we've been sort of locked out of all of the, the, the giant estates. And and certainly with that in mind, I think there's something about um, it's that common ground where you can talk to people quite evenly. Like I found with my daughter, she has a big thing about talking to strangers. I think it's lockdown as well, you know. And I also think it's lockdown, but it's, I think it's because everywhere she goes, where I take her, whether I take her to the woods or to the beach, it's it is a kind of common ground and. People will talk like if I take her to B and Q, for example, she doesn't really talk to strangers. But if you take her to the beach or the park, the kind of promenade in front of the beach, she does. And 
uh, she's a good barometer for kind of, you know, how humans interact because she hasn't been had all the bullshit yet. And, um, and I, I think there's something for that. You know, if there is an answer in a way through, it's definitely from talking to each other and, and you know, and, and being able to prepare to listen to people that might not obviously agree with what you, and don't judge people by how old they are or where they are or how they look as well you know before to and uh so i think that's an importance of nature as well as well as the kind of the beauty and the kind of awe and wonder of it there's also the the level playing field where you can talk to your fellow kind of human that that book you said the book of trespass is that what it was called Mm. Is that written? So yeah. Is that written? Nick Hayes, yeah, it's incredible. Is that written about the past? No, well, it's. I mean, it came out um, just before. I, I think it was maybe year before last. It came out, and it's. Um, I mean, it's very much about the past because it talks about you know how these huge estates in England came to be, and how, and also the history of how we got like the National Trust and the the Lake Districts, and the, it, it turns out every kind of um, every bit of nature that you as a sort of member of the general public are allowed to go to was a hard-won battle from the elites, you know, and, and and nothing was ever given to us as far as, like, the moors. Or, and, I mean, the the, the statistics on the, in, in the book are horrific. We're only, like, 3% of rivers, we're, we're only allowed access to 3% of rivers. The other 90, 97% are locked up behind private estates. And in Scotland, you have the right to roam. Yeah. In Scotland, the laws are completely different. I mean, the book is kind of a companion piece for um, a changing of the law to give uh, England the right to roam. So we, in Scotland, you're allowed to go onto someone else's land and swim in the lake, camp, you know, out in the in the woods. And that's your, you know, your right as a citizen to do that. Whereas it's it's not in, in England, basically. So is it what happens if you go into an estate in England, which you're not granted access to? I mean, that's what the book is. He each chapter he trespasses on a different person's land and tells you about it, whether it be the owner of the Daily Mail or like Lord Bloody Such and Such, you know. Like, and he'll tell you about the history about their family, you know, slave trade, a lot of the, a lot of really horrific stuff, and even just pushing people off the land way back, what you know, fucking 1066 or whatever, and just being like throwing people off and putting up a fence so they could, you know shoot deer or whatever um i've lost my train of thought what was the question oh what, what happens if you actually go onto one of these estates oh i mean not a lot you know you generally get um like the gamekeepers will come up and be really condescending and just sort of tell you to you know tell you to leave in a really condescending manner and then but if you was to, then to say oh surely i have a right to be here then it's actually that's the other thing it's it's more in our con it's in our minds that they've put up the fences they're quite small fences he's like you can climb over them and there's not actually you'd have to kick off a real fuss to end up getting arrested but it's just like they've just told us like and it's like the power of you know of this kind of the word trespass and just saying you can't go there and everybody just goes oh right and it just you know it just don't question the fact that in order to drive to the beach you know you have to drive past lakes rivers woodlands and 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 you never you never go there and you get to the beach and it's fucking overcrowded because it's the one place that people can you know expect to witness a bit of nature and it's just like there's so much of it around us and and that was nick hayes was one of the um like amazing sort of voices of reason that I found during the um during the pandemic where it was like he had a, an idea about how to help you know like looking pulling up land rights and land ownership and you know and, and and working out what is fair is a brilliant way of deconstructing the establishment and at the same time about of, of us improving our you know our mental health and equality institutional racism you know and also like environmental stuff like he, he says a lot about if you if you've never witnessed the beauty of a woodland and learned, you'd never drop your rubbish in a woodland because it'd be, you could see how horrific a thing it would be to do to leave rubbish behind. But if you're only used to corporate arenas where someone gets paid minimum wage to clear up after your beer, plastic beer cups, and that's how you kind of, that turns into your mentality. So then people go onto a field and they drop the litter behind and it's used against them. It's like, this is why we can't let everybody into the, the countryside because they'll drop litter but it's like no it's deeper than that you know like and this are you basically taking away what is you know 
people's human right is to be able to, yes, sleep underneath the stars and swim in lakes and stuff. Like that goes to a lot as to why we, you know, why we feel so disconnected from each other. So yeah, it's a fantastic book and certainly, you know, looking for answers and hope in this, you know, in this strange year, it's been incredible. And I've got a lot of songs about it as well. <laughs> Do you find yourself spending time in nature every day? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I jog most mornings, you know, and when I was in London, I'd jog up the, the canal and uh, and now, you know, up the beach. And certainly, you know, and then with my daughter as well, like even in, in London, there's like Wick Woodlands, which I, I think I thought was an ancient woodlands, but I think it was planted in like the <laughs> 90s or something. But... Uh, but a, 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 an amazing little small kind of condensed woodland next to the canal um, up by Stratford. And, and I used to, we'd, we'd go there at any, you know, any available opportunity. And I think my kind of, my, my sort of love for sort of nature and the outdoors actually came secondary to, I learned it through partying, basically. I learned that I loved being in woodlands from going to raves outside, you know, and partying outside and just being like, I'd go to a club and I wouldn't get it. You know, I didn't want to dance in a, in a club. I'd, I'd, I'd go outside to a rave and I'd be like, this, you know, something inside me clicks. Like, and the same with festivals, you know, and I found from doing festivals, I started, I'd be so used to staying out for whole weekends that like if the festival finished, we'd just go to a campsite nearby or, you know, just go somewhere and sleep in the van nearby and just stay out, out and about. And rather than it being like being taught how to, you know, the importance of the countryside and what it has to offer and then falling into festivals, festivals took me outside. And then from that, I was like, oh, well, you know, like, oh, this is fucking beautiful. You know, like we should come back here when there's not a festival on and, and started doing stuff like that. And that was like my way in you know from growing up in the suburbs of Essex it's like that door should be easier to find than that do you ever write when you're in those spaces in my head I mean um I wouldn't pull out my guitar um but I'd be like yeah definitely like and certainly when I'm running you know if I'm I'd, now I'll if I've got a song that's kind of you know if the body of a song is there and it needs the sort of fine tuning then that stuff will happen running in the shower walking along i mean my daughter she's like stop singing like so i'm just walking through <laughs> just singing while we're on a walk and she's like constantly telling me to shut up like stop singing dad i'm, like, I'm sorry <laughs> so yeah i mean i'm kind of writing all the time in that aspect but i i wouldn't i wouldn't like park up underneath under a tree and and get my guitar and sort of like oh <laughs> sing it right in for the trees but, but at the same time yeah at what point it's interesting you see you might have like the body of a song or something at what point do you kind of identify a piece of writing as like a bridge or a chorus or a verse at what point does it kind of start to take that shape in that structure as it's written i mean the my my favorite songs of mine and the best songs are the ones that can sometimes you know they they almost take as the length of the song to write you know if you just sort of like in the mood it's just like whoa and it's like whoa i've got it you know and it's like and then you go and that's going to be the chorus <laughs> and it's like whoa like and then that, that's it and you're like whoa and you know you like as much as it might it won't be the same as that you'll know that you've got enough you know from just that one that one blast um and they're not all like that um but certainly when it does come like that it's just like and then you like I mean, I'd, I'd now started sort of recording little notes, but before it'd be like, almost like, you know, like in films where you've got to write someone's number plate down that's just robbed your house. It was like, almost like I'd get to the end of the song and I'd be like fucking scrambling for a pen. Just like, Whoa, what was it? Like trying to remember the first verse of the song that I'd just written the third verse of and, uh, and, and kind of get it out like that. But yeah, it's... I, the truth is I don't really... I, I never really put my songs under the microscope or, or work on them a huge amount. Once they, certainly not me and the guitar, there's not really much more I can do apart from, you know, come up with a vocal melody and the words and play the same old chords. I can then do a lot more in the studio with other musicians and turn it into something. But the actual, the bit of me writing it and the, the sort of how I would gig it solo is, yeah, I, I, might, I might sit on the words for a while 
and you know and, and sort of hash them out but the actual sort of like more often than not I'll kind of like I'll wake up in the morning and be like yes got a new song and you know and I know that it's done and it's not like it's not like oh I wonder whether that one will make the cut or it needs loads of work. It's like, yeah, that's the, the main of it's done. I'll just finish it in my own time. So the family tree, did you not wake up and it was kind of just there? Yeah, that was one that was, uh, that was written. The lyrics were written for that completely separate from anything else because I did just like something about songwriting where it's like a sort of frame of mind. And it's like, and I think, I, I believe it's with all, you know, all kind of forms of creativity. It's just a sort of like a drop in of your ego and, uh, and, and, and just sort of like, and just being able to express yourself without really, without any consideration. And I think if, if I'd actually say if I'm good at anything, it's, it's actually being able to hone that mind space. Like I think that's why I can be so prolific and, because I've just sort of like worked out how to get into that mind space rather than having, I could see why, how something like writer's block could happen because it is, you know, it is all, all within, but it's like the, it's quite a meditative space, I guess. But not, but not because of that, normally I choose when it happens. It's not very often that I'm like struck by a song and be like, oh man, I can't wait to get this, to get this down. I might be like, in my head be like that's a good idea to write a song about that and then later when i have sort of like created this mood in my head then i'll write a song about it but yeah the family tree i just woke up one morning and was and i write normally i write my songs pen and paper you know in notebooks but i wrote all the lyrics to the whole song just in my phone laying in bed one morning and was just like almost before i'd woken up and i was just and then i just sort of finished it i was like and then just didn't look at it for a couple of days and then came back. And it felt like I was um, writing someone else's song, almost like finishing someone else's song off for them. and was just sort of making up a melody for someone else's words, which is quite nice. Is, when that's happening, is the voice, is your voice guiding the melody or is the melody guiding your voice? It's the words. I think the words guide the melody. It'll generally start with something to say. I'll be like, this, this is what I want to say. And, and within, within that phrase will determine how, you know, how, how it sounds, you know, because of, of, of how it is said. But again, no, you know, there is the, the one thing I do like, love about songwriting is there isn't, you know, a right or wrong way of doing it. Um, but more often than not for me, yeah, it'll be like, cause it'll just be about fitting whatever the kind of syllables or whatnot of that sentence in to the free chords that I always use. Sort of, uh, <laughs> is it quite easy for you to kind of alter the melody slightly if, you, if the words need to change? I'd change, I think if I've got them, if it doesn't come, I never really sort of shoehorn anything in. If it's like, um, if, if, I, if I hit a wall with it, I just, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll I guess I change the words quicker than I change the melody. If I've got like the first verse and then I'm working my way through the second verse and it's like, oh fuck, I want to say that, but these lines don't fit in. I'll just, if I, you know, I'll just sack them off and, uh, and say this. I think it's easier to say the same thing using different words than it is to reconcoct the melody halfway through a song. Um, I, but I don't, as much as I'm, you know, I enjoy talking about the, um, the kind of technique of it. I never think about any of this when I'm doing it. It's just more like, it's just, this is going to be a song about this and these are going to be the words and it's going to go, and then just sort of like, it is more, it, the less you think about it, the better a song you're going to get is, is really I guess because you're so present in the moment as well with your songs. Like they're so taking place there and then. Yeah. I mean, and I'm certainly not saying this is how, you know, how it should be done for anybody else. This is just, you know, this is just how... It, how I've found that it works works for me and it's definitely been a um, if it's not broke don't fix it I mean I have weird like actually you can see them on the scene for you but like, I, I, I always use the same colour notebooks just because like the first couple I was like oh I just sort of like it would just feel it turned into like a, a weird sort of personal tradition where it's like I've got a blue notebook and that and it's like oh I've written all these good songs in it. it's like I'll get another one and it's like oh, okay I wrote that and it's like well 
don't get a green one, you know, <laughs> so it might not be the same. So just continue with what works. So it's, it's definitely been a, the, my, my songwriting sort of, the, the technique of writing songs really hasn't changed since I started doing it like this. And the first of them, Blue Notebooks, was my standing on a chair album, you know. It's more like that. There's a kind of, um, I don't know, a sort of like, like a tradition and, and sort of personal tradition which I stick by and I'll sort of put more emphasis on that perhaps than I would sort of like how is the melody going to fit in with the words the rest of it I just sort of like just do what I do that, that's interesting like what you're saying there about how you're the tradition the word you used about always using the same notebook kind of writing songs in the same way something that carries through into your records directly with like the same kind of album cover same release date you know a birthday show where do you think that love of tradition is kind of coming from? What's kind of drawing you to that? Why do you enjoy it so much? I think it's, I think it's just because it's worked, you know. Like, there is definitely a world where, you know, like, I wouldn't be invited onto podcasts and I wouldn't be touring, you know, and and I think it's like, fuck, people like this, you know, and I love doing it. So how can I make sure I, you know, do it for as long as possible? And, uh, yeah, it goes back to the if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. And and I think, like, I think now that it's, I've done it for so long, there's a consistency, which I'd like to think that people that like my music, you know, kind of enjoy, you know, with the... I mean, it's almost in the name a little bit as well, isn't it? You know, that sort of, you know what you're going to get sort of vibe. I hadn't thought about that before, but I quite like that. The simplicity of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's sort of uh, simplicity and it, you know, it's consistent, basically. I mean, I think I've been, you know, more more consistent than most with my songwriting and, and, and release structure. And, uh, you know, long may it continue. I wanted to ask about another aspect of your creativity as well. I was songwriting. That being your penchant for board games and everyone's a critic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which you? How long ago did you drop the rules for that? A few weeks back, something. Yeah, I. I'm, it was. It's weird because I've been. Yeah, I, I guess I invented the game maybe four years ago, three or four years ago, um, and would play it on. And I loved. It. I was so proud of it. Like I, I can't even remember how it come about. Actually, I can. I can remember, and it must have been three years ago because when um, when my daughter was born. I was playing her music and it was like, when she was in the hospital, I was like, what can be the first song that she ever listens to? It was like, I felt this sort of like huge pressure. It's like, she's never heard music. What the <laughs> hell am I going to play? I had like my mini rig at the hospital and it was like, I, you know, I, I've never been, I'm not one to sort of stumble in my DJ choices, if you know what I mean. I just like slam something <laughs> on, but I was like, right, okay. So I, I played the Beatles in the hospital. I was like, we'll just listen to the Beatles and Bob Dylan. And we listened to that in the hospital. And then like, we got home and it was like a new pressure. I was like, and I, so I decided I'm going to work through the alphabet, playing her a different act each, you know, from, from let's say like, and every day I played her a different act from a different letter of the alphabet and started, um, and, and off the back of that, and I, you know, there's, we'd had other tour games in, in the past. Um, there's one where you say a band name and the end letter, you have to come up with one that there's, there's some others, you know, long drives and touring, there's long drives with good friends. And I kind of conjured up everyone's a critic as a loose idea and started playing it on tour with some friends and then we you know you just was like oh and you could do this we could do that and then I played it with different people and got until it was like I was you know I had the rules I knew them and I I I was my plan I sort of tried to work out a way to monetize it I was like how do I like or how do I even get this out into the world why would people care you know you you can't make it into a, a board game the best thing about it is the the fact that you don't need anything to play it and and the other thing is that you know like you don't need anything to play it and 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 it's not a spectator sport as well because i thought about doing it as a podcast but it's like the thing is the best bit is when you're thinking for ages that's why it works in the car because you got to fucking sit thinking and it's like and then you know you're allowed to take your time which isn't fun to listen to other people <laughs> thinking at all so it's like it's not going to work as a podcast and i just couldn't see any way of getting it into the wider world and whoever i toured with i'd always teach him the game and be like look try and play it with other people i wanted to kind of like spread it out and let other people play it 
towards, you know, only recently, because it didn't strike me as something that would work on Zoom or anything like that. It was it was towards the end of, of this whole kind of shit show, you know, and I've been doing Zoom quizzes with my family as well as everybody else, you know, and it's sort of sick and tired of the quizzes a long time. You wrote a song about it. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And uh, so it was like... But then I was, I was just chatting with, you know, chatting with some friends and so, and my mate was like, can't we play that tour game that you always bang on about? And I was like, oh yeah, we could try Critic actually on Zoom. And we had a, we had an absolute ball, you know, and I was just like, and my wife was there and she was just like, you you know, this is it. You got to get it. You got to package it now get it you know and somehow get it out because there's not a huge amount of people that would be spending long drives with their friends anyway so it was always going to be quite a small market of people that might enjoy the a a good car game uh but whether a good zoom game is you know is is a different thing completely so i just yeah i just sort of spent the next week writing up the rules and making my little video and then just kind of launched it out into the world and and you know as far as I know, it's been played a few times. And uh, I mean, I, I kind of like, I'd love for in my later life, me to be chatting with someone and me being like, did you know I invented everyone's a critic? And they'd be like, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> like everybody, no one invented that. That's just one of them things. I'll be like, well, mate, I did. I fucking invented that shit. But whether it'll get that far, I don't know. But that's the, that's my dream for that game It's for it just to become like, you know, common knowledge. Everybody knows the rules and everybody just, oh, should we play Crick? Yeah. I Spy. Yeah, like I Spy. Imagine that. Imagine meeting someone that was like me. I invented I Spy. And be like, bullshit. <laughs> Is that when you, you know, those long drives when your mind kind of gets a little bit bored, do you naturally just start creating things when boredom kind of comes in? Is that your kind of default go-to to kind of cure that? Yeah, I think that the, I don't think the game, would, I don't think the game was actually created on a drive if it was sort of again it was fine-tuned on a drive so i was like oh, i've got this idea it was the idea came and i was like look we've got the long drive today i've got an, an idea about what what we can do it is i actually did one tour um with a chap that one of the guys on the tour was kind of in recovery from a stroke and he was he'd come on the tour he was opening up and he was every night he'd relearn his songs basically in, in, during his stroke he'd, he'd forgotten all of his songs and he was he'd been invited on the tour because he was a good friend of the the, the chap i was touring with but as part of a kind of recovery process for him because he needed to to re-remember his songs and he'd, he'd relearn his songs and he we played critic daily and he was a massive music nerd and and it was you know he said himself it was really great for his recovery as well because it is using a part of your of your brain you know it's like rather than just idly thinking i mean it's so weird i've played it hundreds of times and i can still you know like get lost and be like p p and it, again it's like when I said things scramble away from you, like forgetting the lyrics to a song, if you like, I can't for the life of me think of a band that begins with P and the longer you wait, the harder it gets. And everyone, you know, I've seen people wait half hour before having, having their go for, and it's like, it, it, and, and when you've got a four hour drive, that's, you know, that can only be, be a good thing. So yeah, I'm really proud of it. And, uh, um, I hope that people do, do play it and do enjoy it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.